This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast episode 417 Expectation Failed. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. With me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? I am doing great. Uh, just to let everyone know, this is the penultimate episode of the of the of this season of Astronomy Cast. So we have this episode, and then we have one more episode, uh, title unknown, and then we will uh, take the summer off as we always do, and then we'll be back right after DragonCon in early September. So if you're like wondering why episodes aren't showing up on your uh, podcatching software, that will be why. We'll be back. Don't worry. Don't cry. So so it, in looking at what would be possible for the next show episode, we, we've been taking somewhat advantage of the HTTP error codes since we hit number 400 because it's fun. And error code 418 is I'm a teapot. Whoa. And we need to figure out how to turn that into an episode. I got it. Well, I mean, obviously, we need to talk about some kind of like, you know, uh, quantum mechanics. Tempest in a teapot? No. Like, well, either we could talk about sort of, anyway, there's a ton. Seriously, that is the 418 error code? That's the 418 right. error I love code. It. I love it. I got, I got a million ideas. We'll uh, We'll talk after the show. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light, Inc., Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. Astronomy Cast is proudly sponsored by CleanCoders.com. Training videos with personality for software professionals. Got a theory? Great. Now go out and test it. Today we talk about what happens when you turn up the unexpected from dark energy and relativity to the heliocentric model of the universe. So Pamela, today we're going to talk, this is sort of one of your recommendations, we're going to talk about about when you have a theory and then you try to go test it out and what happens when perhaps nature doesn't conform to what you were expecting either in the good way or in the bad way so uh let's uh let's go sort of all the way back to the beginning of i guess modern science uh ancient Greek science and uh, and talk about some of the first sort of one of the first situations of this. I, I think the the best example of well that didn't work um, was was poor Kepler kept trying to come up with equations to map out the planetary motions assuming circular orbits and it turns out planets they really don't 
move in circles. They move in ellipses, slightly flattened circles. And and so there is a whole lot of expectation failed in terms of making careful observation, careful observation, putting together the equations, putting together the equations, predicting what should be seen and not seeing it. Right. But I, I mean, this is all sort of comes on the original model of the universe developed by Ptolemy, right? Was that the Earth was at the center of the universe and that the, the there were all these crystal spheres surrounding us, including the sun, and that all of these spheres would would turn and it would pretty well explain the motion of the of the of the universe. And then Copernicus flipped things around and put the sun at the center of the solar system and had the Earth just be just another planet. And that also made sense, but didn't it 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 didn't it predict didn't work. The, it didn't work. It didn't predict the motions of the planets right. as well as the Ptolemaic system did that people had been grinding away on for for hundreds and and even thousands of years so uh and so you've got this expectation that that all of the planets are going in these perfectly circular orbits around the sun didn't work how did they get that resolved well, so once poor Kepler figured out, and, and he started from the supposition that the Earth is not the center of the solar system. He did start from the Copernican notion that the sun is in the center. And because he was working from math, he eventually just had to have that leap of ingenuity, that leap of creativity to try a different shape. Once he tried an ellipse, suddenly everything fell into working. He could make accurate predictions of everything except for one annoying little world. Which annoying little world? Mercury. Okay. So what was wrong with Mercury? Well, it was our next expectation failed kind of problem. And this is Mercury is in so close to the sun that – to fully understand its motion, you have to take into account not just Kepler's equation of motion, not just what Newton came up with to explain the extra pulls and tugs that become apparent um, that Newton was able to explain, um, but you actually have to have a relativistic correction to fully get at Mercury's motion. Right. And and they had no idea about relativity. So so they did these really great observations of all the planets, got them all to within, you know, really accurate points, but then Mercury just kept drifting away. How how off was Mercury? It wasn't a huge amount in terms of like, oh, Mercury is nowhere near where I expected to be. But it was definitely a the star it's behind or the star that's behind it rather is not the correct star um, by a small amount through a telescope eyepiece. If you were to very carefully watch Mercury year after year after year, you'd see that over the course of a century, it moved about 43 arc seconds off of where you'd expect it to be compared to the background stars. Right, right. So you're sort of, I mean, with the other ones, you could say, well, like maybe we're making some observational error, we're a little off, but Mercury was just 
completely not where it was supposed to be. Right. And and so this works out to about half an arc second a year. And good telescopes can make out one or two arc seconds. So over a matter of years, this becomes more and more and more noticeable with more and more what the insert expletive of choice is going on. So then how did they finally resolve that? Well, for about 300 years, there's a whole lot of scratching of heads. Now, it, 300 years is is a bit of an exaggeration because it wasn't Kepler who immediately noticed the problems because they were still working from not the best optical systems out there. And in fact, a lot of the work that he was working from, it wasn't telescopes they were using. It was very careful alignment circles, big old chunks of metal where they're measuring essentially with fixed sextants where things are on the sky. With that kind of technology, it wasn't Kepler who was noticing this and data taken by Tycho Brahe. Um, But Over the decades and centuries of telescopes up until the early 1900s when Einstein started working on his theory of relativity, which was able to predict and explain Mercury's precession, Mercury's not quite in the right place according to Newtonian physics, it was Einstein in the early 1900s that fixed the problem with our expectations. Right. And so there was a couple of other experiments that they that they did as well around that time to confirm Einstein's uh, theories on on general relativity. In fact, they, you know, they're still attempting to directly observe, I guess we've wrapped up the final uh, Einsteinian prediction with uh, with the direct detection of gravitational waves. But it's just this sort of sequence of new kinds of observations that they were able to do to prove both the, the movements of Mercury as well as some of his other uh, suggestions, his other and, predictions. And at a certain level, I think, because relativity, like quantum mechanics, is so non-intuitive that it's going to be at least a few more generations, if not forever, that people are going, and we shall test general relativity in this new direction now, just to confirm one more time that your expectation is wrong and reality is much trickier than... Have you ever heard that anecdote with uh, Eddington where someone asks him, is it true, Mr. Dr. Eddington, that you're one of the three people in the world who understand relativity? And he stopped and thought for a while. And then and then someone's like, what's wrong? No? And he's like, no, I'm just trying to think about who the third person might be. <laughs> I, yes. <laughs> when, when, when I was at Harvard, we, we had a professor who was introduced to me as one of the two people that understood string theory in the United States. And and I decided I didn't want to ask who the other one was. <laughs> right. Um, so, OK, so we've got you know turns out looking for circular movements of the planets and it turns out their ellipses and everything changes and then trying to use those elliptical motions of the planets and it turns out that they're under relativistic motion and you know sorry but not sorry so let's so what's another example where uh, you went looking for one outcome and you got a completely different outcome. So so again, at the turn of, of the 1900s, uh, technology in astronomy was going through the, the second renaissance. We went from having telescopes to suddenly we started to be able to do amazing glass plate photography. And this brought on a whole new set of things that we were finally 
finally capable of doing with longer exposure times. And one of those things that we were finally able to do was take spectra to spread the light out through prisms or diffraction gratings so that we could see the individual emission and absorption lines produced by the atoms, the gas in stars and galaxies. And part of doing this included uh, many different folks looking out at galaxies. And the expectation was that we lived in a steady state universe that had kind of been around forever, would kind of be around forever, was neither expanding nor contracting. It was just study. And, and if you live in a study galaxy, it was assumed that about half the galaxies would be moving towards us, about half would be moving away from us, and it would be this nice, friendly, random distribution. And it was a fellow by the name of Vesto Slifer working out at Lowell Observatory who was the first to notice, no, most of the galaxies, they're running away from us. Most of them have light that is shifted towards the red. And this meant that we were either in a special place that caused all the galaxies to run away or we lived in a different kind of universe that we couldn't understand at that moment. Now, now the thing was, all he knew was the galaxies tended to be moving away from us. Right. And so the expectation, the perfectly natural expectation that you would think of is that, you know, you would imagine something else that you're familiar with, like imagine birds flying around you or you're out on a out on a boat and there's a bunch of other boats and some boats are moving towards you and some boats are moving away from you and some boats are sort of hanging out at the same distance and and by by detecting those motions, you can start to get a sense of what's going on. And the completely unexpected result is this, all these galaxies are all moving away from us. What's wrong with us? Why do they hate us? <laughs> right? I'm sure it was a blow to his, to his ego. But, uh, but then, so what was the sort of uh, understanding that they came to? Well, so uh, Henrietta Levette, working at Harvard College Observatory, figured out that you could use pulsating variable stars to measure the distance to, well, anything that had a variable star we could observe in it. So using Cepheid variables, uh, Hubble, the Hubble, Edwin Hubble, uh, was uh, with his colleague Milton Humason. They took glass plate spectra and images of a variety of nearby galaxies measured the distance using those pulsating variable stars, those Cepheids with what we now call the Levitt relationship for their distance. And he made a plot of the distance to the galaxies compared to uh, their recession velocity or their approach velocity, so their redshift or blue shift. And what he found was the more distant something was from us, the faster it appeared to be going. And it was the nearby stuff that had this random mix of moving away and toward us. And the way we now understand this, thanks to Hubble, who actually put the idea forward, is the nearby stuff, it's gravitationally bound to us. We're, we're all kind of in this local group together. But once you look beyond our local group, we start to see things getting carried away from us by the expansion of our universe. And 
something that's nearby doesn't have that much stuff between us and it to do the expanding. But the further something is away, the more stuff is between us and it. And all that extra stuff, all of it's expanding, which means that further away stuff with more expansion going on is going to be carried away faster. So fine uh you know that's that's all fine hubble and and obviously this led to the concept of the, you know the big bang cosmology and this understanding that the entire universe was once a singularity and then it's, it's been expanding ever since don't ask what came before the singularity that is not a question that 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 the big bang attempts to explain but i know that just in the last say 20 ish years or so right astronomers tried to really get a good sense of exactly how fast the universe is expanding and, and exactly when it's going to slow down and stop Right. So so back in 1998, and I think most modern professional astronomers have this year like etched into their brain. Because in 1998, two different supernova detection experiments, two different groups of observers who were trying to measure the expansion rate of the universe by looking at supernovae that have really bright spectral lines that can be detected at these great distances – and which also have a standard brightness because they're just explosions of a set amount of material. If you consistently blow up the same amount of star, you end up with essentially the same brightness of explosion. So by being able to measure the expansion rate using things with a set distance yet again, they were trying to get at how does the expansion rate of our universe change with time? And the thought was that three different things were going to be happening. We were either going to slow down so much that eventually gravity pulled the whole universe back together and crunched us and we died died by fire. Or perhaps the universe's expansion was going to ever just slow until asymptotically, which is a fancy math word for in infinite time, uh, the universe essentially stopped. A final theory that we had was there'd be enough that while it was slowing down, it would never slow down so much that it stopped. These were the only things that we really even considered, because to consider anything else was to say that when you took the integral of one of Einstein's equations, you got an extra constant that changed the acceleration of, of the expansion rate, that it wasn't just a single rate forever, but that it was a changing rate over time. And all of us just wanted to set that constant to zero. It made the math lovely. But uh, as, as Chris Impey once put it in a very uh, strongly emotional talk, no one ordered this constant up, but the universe put it there. And what was found in 1998 was all of our mathematical assumptions that you could set this constant to zero were completely wrong. And our universe does indeed have an acceleration term, and that acceleration term is causing our universe to expand at an increasing rate forever, forever. Right. Thanks, Einstein. Hey, the guys did get Nobel Prizes for it. You know what I find interesting is that people don't like people find that outcome that, you know, the heat death of the universe, this this accelerating expansion, this cold, quiet, long thing. I, I find people generally 
find that more sad and depressing than the big crunch, right? This idea <laughs> that the universe is going to come to a stop and then it's going to come smashing in and everything's going to get mulched up. For some reason, they're like, that's the one they had there. They were hoping for as opposed to the, the one that we've got. And I find that really weird. Well, the it just I- gives us more time, you know, like, yeah. But the big crunch, it's like we get to see each, see everything later. It's like a reverse diaspora. Everyone comes back to visit and then kill yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So, so, so there's dark energy completely. And it really is the classic. I mean, it is the, it is the, the gold standard of completely opposite results that came from uh, doing some kind of observational astronomy. I, I love it. Uh, do you have any more for us? Oh, well, dark matter. You can't mention dark energy without mentioning dark matter. Then, then you just mentioned it. Begin. <laughs> Proceed. So, so uh, it, I guess it started with Vera Rubin uh, going out and while working on her graduate degree, uh, measuring rotation rates and finding no doesn't match the mathematics. You can add up all the luminous light. And different experiments have shown that this works if you're looking at spiral galaxies doing the spiral galaxy rotation thing, if you look at a variety of galaxies in a galaxy cluster. No matter what it is that you're looking at, the the things in the outskirts of the system are moving way faster than our, our predictions that add up all the luminous stuff way faster than our predictions say they should be moving. So this meant that there had to be stuff out there, stuff permeating our whole galaxy, permeating all of galaxy clusters, in fact, permeating a lot of space, stuff that we can't see via the electromagnetic force. And and that's just perplexing and difficult to think about. Um, and again, expectations failed. The, the idea that there'd be something that didn't reflect light, didn't emit light, that was just out there being a gravitational suck. Well, we, we didn't predict that, but it's sure out there. And over the decades, over the scientific generations of discovery, um, we've been able to figure out it's at least in part, perhaps not all, all of it, but it's at least in part some sort of a particle that we haven't fully identified yet. Yeah. I, and I mean, the thing is, is like with dark energy, I mean, we know a little bit more about dark matter than we know about dark energy in that what we know with dark matter is that it's probably not gravity. It's probably some kind of particle. And we probably have a sense about, I guess, what it, what its cross section is, how big it is. But that's kind of it. And we know that it doesn't emit electromagnetic radiation but that's about it dark energy we're like you know it's just (laughs) like we we, again we know it's there and that's all we got yeah and and sometimes that that's all the universe gives you this is why we keep doing science and keep building new and fancier detectors to do new and interesting experiments to try and figure out not just what this crazy stuff is but to keep looking for well our greatest discoveries seem to keep coming out of this expectation failed. One of my favorite conversations to have with 
space scientists, some of the people that are running, like the principal investigators for various missions, like, you know, you talk to the people who are working on the Dawn mission or the people working on New Horizons. And when they do the mission, they have a bunch of stuff that they're looking for. But I think the part that tickles them the most is is the stuff that they weren't even expecting. And so now we see these close-up pictures of, of Pluto, and we see these amazing mountains of ice and these plains of of ammonia and methane, uh, you know, this weird hydrological cycle. When we look at Ceres and we see these bizarre salt deposits at the at the middles of these of these craters. It's like every time that that a new instrument is created that gets out there and is actually able to to start taking a look at at a new region of space or with more sensitivity, it turns up uh, these these surprises. Um, there's one we talked about the expansion of the I guess of the of the universe. There's one great story that I I know you probably know from heart, and this is the the um, the radio telescopes back in the 1950s that were working on um, uh, microwaves. Yeah, on microwaves. Right. So uh, people always teach little kids that when you make a discovery, it's a eureka moment. But um, I think most discoveries that are unexpected like this are actually deeply rooted in the, huh? Wait, that shouldn't have happened. Uh, what did we do wrong? And for for two gentlemen working at Bell Labs, Penzias and Wilson, they were trying to basically plot out what is all of the interference in the microwave band that people building receivers for commercial communications would need to worry about. So when Penzias and Wilson built their big horn and uh, discovered that there was essentially this background noise, no matter what direction they pointed their detector in, the first reaction was, what the heck? Where's the noise in our electronics? What did we do wrong? Is there something wrong with our horn? There is a great deal of scrubbing of pigeon poo, as one does. Yeah. Yeah. And the truth was, no matter how much pigeon poo they cleaned out of that horn, that noise was still there because the noise is part of our universe. And what they had discovered what their expectations had failed to account for. I really love error code 418. Um, what, what they'd failed to account for is our universe has this constant background of microwave light that had actually just been predicted by folks working up at Princeton University as being one of the natural outcomes of having a big bang, of having a singularity that expanded out from a hot, bright everything into the universe we have today. So what they found was something that, well, a few people had started to say, well, this is something we should detect, but it wasn't generally in the list of things that were being looked for. And they just happened to find it a little bit ahead of their time. Yeah. Uh, that one's, that one's a great one. Um, Okay, is there, are there any like fairly recent ones that spring to mind? Events? Pluto, I mean, I, Pluto. What that, <laughs> that Pluto exists? Well, no, we we knew Pluto existed, but it, it should not have active tectonics. I I don't think any of our our basic expectations of what. Pluto should look like came anywhere near reality. We had expected this ancient 
pox-marked world that was just gouged up with craters and fairly flat other than what was created by the craters. Think moon, but icy. And and what we found instead was something that is geologically alive, that has active resurfacing, that has some sort of a heat generation mechanism that is causing convective cells. This this so broke with all expectations that there's probably going to be literal generations of researchers dedicating their lives to trying to model how do you how do you get what was seen in that far too swift flyby and unfortunately it will probably be the next or the next next generation of astronomers that finally gets us to return to that icy world. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, we're starting to run out of time. We could do this all day long. Uh, we've got hot Jupiters. Uh, we've got uh, pulsars, quasars. I mean, there's so oh, many yes. things uh, that that turned up completely, you know, unexpectedly and even some modern stuff. Uh, yeah, this could go on forever. And I think... You know, when I talk to the anti-science people, uh, you know, a lot of the kind, you know, they treat, they say like science is like a religion and you don't, uh, you know, you won't, you know, you're, you're not open-minded and you don't. And I think that's ridiculous Yeah. because so often these, these outcomes happen, these discoveries are made, they completely change people's expectations and their theories on what they thought they knew and what they understood. And the scientists just go, okay, well, this is the new world now. Now I understand right. it a little better. My old way of thinking was stupid and uh, didn't fit, and I have rejected it. And now I am thinking about this the new way. They're open-minded. And uh, and there's so many examples of Neutrinos. These. We never <laughs> talked about how neutrinos change flavors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we could go on and on and on. So that was the point that that I think, you know, there are so many of these events that that – you make one observation and it overturns the current understanding of the world and the universe as you knew it and you're into a new one and that's great and scientists love it and they love to be wrong and i think it's it's important to know that our great discoveries come from moments of huh that's not right and discovering we're not we're what's not right because the real universe is far more interesting than anything we can imagine yeah we just didn't understand it yet well thanks Pamela my pleasure thanks for listening to astronomy cast a nonprofit resource provided by astrosphere new media association fraser kane and dr pamela gay you can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at cosmoquest.org. If you enjoy AstronomyCast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. 
To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.